you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Romans chapter 12 this morning. We are be in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. As you're turning there, I want to remind you that this evening uh, we have a service at our Belmont campus from 5 to 6 to remember our one-year, mark our one-year anniversary, first anniversary of our Belmont campus. That campus launched a year ago this week. And uh, I invite you to be a part of that. I'm asking especially those of you who are here in Burlington on a regular basis, uh, please, if you can, come out tonight from 5 to 6. Not only will it be great to have the campuses together worshiping, but I think it'll be a great support for those who are at Belmont every week worshiping to see those from Burlington as well out supporting them. I know if you all show up, we're not going to fit in that building. I understand that. Um, but, uh, but as many as can, we'll, we'll make it work somehow. We'll put some people in the fellowship hall if we need to. But, uh, but tonight, 5 to 6, we'll have dessert afterwards. 51 Lexington Street and Waverly Square in Belmont. Uh, have a, both of our worship teams will be there, Belmont and Burlington. We'll worship, we'll pray together, we'll celebrate what God has done. So I invite you to be with us this evening at 5 o'clock in Belmont. Again, if you haven't been there, great time to see the campus. This is the first time, again, we are having something in Belmont without simultaneously having something in Burlington. Uh, so it's your chance to get out there and be a part and see that campus as well. You can park on the streets, side streets. You can park in a municipal lot. There is no parking lot if you haven't been to that building in Belmont. and that There is no parking lot there, but there's plenty of side street parking and the municipal lot is free on Sundays. You can park there as well. All right, we're in this series called Repurpose, this kind of mini-series. We're taking four weeks to spend on Romans 12, 1 and 2 as we are walking through the book of Romans, but we're kind of pausing for a few, uh, few weeks on Romans 12, 1 and 2 and talking about living a repurposed life. We talk a lot about repurposing things these days. I think the most important thing that God wants to repurpose is your life. I'm glad that people repurpose all kinds of things around their houses. I think it's so cool to see things that are repurposed when you see in someone's house. But I think the most cool thing is to see a life that has been repurposed for God. Disconnected from previous responsibilities and engagements and given completely as a living sacrifice for God. And we mentioned that what we're talking about here in the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, we've been talking about, Paul's been talking about everything you've been saved from. And that's wonderful, and we praise God for that. Chapters 12 through the rest of the book, he's talking about everything you have been saved for and how to live a life that God has called you to live. What you've been saved from is so important, but what you've been saved for is equally important. And so we're talking about that and uh, from chapters 12 through uh, the end of 15 into 16, he's talking about the life that we are supposed to and the life that we are called to live this exciting and wonderful and difficult and challenging life that God has called us to. And so today we'll be in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse uh, 2. We saw last week in verse 1 that we are to live our lives as a living sacrifice for God, that it is the only logical and reasonable response to God's love. Today we're going to be talking about one, another aspect of a repurposed life. And let me start by telling you about my drive a couple weeks ago. I was driving through my neighborhood 
and something unusual happened uh, in me that I was surprised to feel, a feeling that rose up within me. I was driving through my neighborhood and driving by and looking at the different houses in my neighborhood, as I often do, and you probably do as well, and I'm looking at the lawns that I'm driving by. And there's all kinds of different lawns as you drive through your neighborhood, you see, right? I mean, you see brown lawns, and you see some with crabgrass and no crabgrass, and some the people in new lawns, and they're trying to grow lawns, and some people that have just given up on their lawn, and, and they're not cutting it at all, or they've just put rocks down because they're done with lawns. And I'm driving through, and I see some beautiful green, lush lawns that I'm driving by. And normally, when I see these beautiful green lawns that I would drive by, I would be like, wow, that's beautiful, right? That's a great lawn. How do I get my lawn like that? Like, I mean, the grass, every blade is level. You can't see a weed in there. And it's just green and lush. And and it's beautiful. It looks like Fenway Park, right? And all my life, up until... Recently, I would drive by a lawn like that and think, this is beautiful. How do I get a lawn like that? But something rose up within me a couple weeks ago when I was driving through my neighborhood that was strange. It wasn't, oh, what a beautiful lawn. There was this subtle, low-grade, I'm not going to say anger, But there was something that I didn't recognize that rose up within me that was there and and it was this this little bit of frustration. I looked at these lawns and I said, the nerve of these people. (laughs) Look at their lawn. Don't they even care that we are in a drought? Don't they even? Because here's what happened. Let me tell you the backstory. A couple months ago, I was watering my lawn and I got a notice that said, you have to stop watering your lawn. You can only water on these days a week. And I said, okay, I'll only water on those days a week. And then I got another notice that said, you can only water one day a week. And I said, okay, well, I'll only water one day a week. And then I got another notice that said, you can't water at all anymore. And I, and I said, all right, well, you know, and they also said, you're subject to fines if we catch you watering. Uh, and, and so I said, well, I'm done. Huh? You know, hey, I don't need to sh- shut off the sprinklers. And, and I stopped watering. But some of my neighbors didn't. And I drove by. And I look at these lawns. And something rose up within me that said, hey, what are you doing? Now, here's why I tell you that story. Not because I I really care if you're watering your lawn or not. Please don't take this. I'm not judging you on that. I hope you have a beautiful lawn. That's not what I'm calling. Um, But it is interesting. Let let me just give you a side note on this. Let me just, just, this wasn't even my notes. This is free. I'll give you a side note on this. I was meeting with the town administrator of Burlington this week, and I was talking with him about the water thing. And and he said to me, he said, did you know that in the winter, Burlington uses two and a half million gallons of water? You want to guess how many they use in the summer? Five and a half million gallons of water. And I thought, okay, so I guess people do water their lawns a lot, and that's that's significant. So anyway, there is a reason uh, behind all this. Okay, end parentheses. That was was not in my notes. But here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing why I tell you this, not because I care about watering the lawn, because what I noticed about myself in that moment was somewhere along the lines, my thinking got changed, and I did not consciously change it. 
right? Somewhere along the line, my thinking went from, oh, what a beautiful lawn, to, hey, what are you doing? And I did not consciously make the decision to change the way I was thinking. Somehow, I was affected by the world around me and by the thoughts and ideas of the world that I live in in such a way that I didn't even notice it and I can be driving down the street and feelings that I used to have were replaced by different feelings. So the truth is, and what I realized in that moment, and what I want to talk about this morning, is we are all constantly being affected and changed by the world that we live in around us. And sometimes we notice it, but many times we don't. It's like the Lego brick, right? Or the generic off-brand Lego bricks that we were able to find. It's like the Lego brick that starts out as, you know, these plastic chips that could be molded into anything. But because of the mold that they are pressed into, it turns into this. And what I think sometimes we don't realize and what we take for granted is that we are all at times being molded by the world that we live in around us and we may not even realize that it's the case. That we are being changed by the world around us. The way that we think, the way that we act, that we are being changed by the world around us. Our thinking is changing. Let me give you another example of how this happens. How many of you have ever heard the term designated driver? How many? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. You've ever heard the term designated driver? Most of us, right? Almost all of us. How many of you ever been a designated driver? Anyone have served in that role? Right? A lot of people. Up until the late 80s, almost no one in the United States had heard of the term designated driver. Almost no one up until the late 80s had any knowledge of that term. There was a man at Harvard, a Harvard professor named Jay Winston, who heard about this program in the Scandinavian countries called Designated Driver. And he knew all the accidents that were happening in the United States. And he said, we need something like that in the United States. And so he started a program to raise awareness about this term and this idea of designated driver. And here's how he did it. And you probably didn't even realize this is how it happened. In the 1980s, in the late 80s, he talked to all kinds of television producers and directors. In fact, 160 uh, sitcoms or television shows. He would talk to them and he would say, I want five seconds. All I'm asking for is five seconds for you to work into your script Work into your program this concept, idea, and term of designated driver. And so the Cosby Show and Cheers and L.A. Law and all these other shows that maybe you remember from the late 80s, early 90s, took time and worked in this concept. And three years later, by 1991, they did a poll and 90% of the people surveyed knew the term designated driver. After three years, 37% of people polled had served as a designated driver and probably had no idea how the idea maybe even got into their heads. So some conforming can be good and helpful and a blessing to society. It's not all bad. What I'm talking about this morning is sometimes it happens and we don't even realize it's happening. That our thinking is affected by the world around us. 
So this morning, I don't want to get too George Orwell or too Matrix on you, but I do want to ask the question, where are you being shaped? Where are you being conformed? Where am I being conformed and shaped when we don't even realize it? And are you being conformed to things that are good and things that are right? Because a lot of times we're just going and doing things because other people are doing them. Kind of like this video here of this guy. Maybe some of you have seen this video. This guy, this crazy, uh, you see this guy dancing over there? He's, ready, he's getting ready to start something. He's all on his own out there just kind of doing his thing. Nobody's with him. And then soon someone is going to come along and join him in his crazy dance. And there we go. We got the second person that comes along and joins him in his crazy dance. And uh, if you were listening to the audio of this video, it's a TED Talk that uses this video of how to start a movement. And they call this person the first follower. And they say uh, it's the first follower that changes a lone nut into a leader. Um, And so those of you who are leaders, just thank God for your first follower who changes you from a lone nut into a leader. I'm going to keep talking, but you keep watching what happens uh, because after one, this person, oh, here's another one. We're going to join in. Why are we doing it? I don't know. We're just doing it. We're just going to keep, oh, more people are going to come along and we're going to, what are you guys doing? Hey, I want to do that too. And we're going to join in and we're all going to start dancing. You'll see, oh, here we go. Here we go. Now we got, a, now we got some more people. Oh, here, now we got a crowd. And then more people come. And now if you're not doing it, now you're on the outside. And now what's wrong with you? Why aren't you up dancing like the rest of us? And everyone comes over and joins, and a movement is begun. I guess it can happen on the side of a grassy hill. It can happen in your life as well. Someone starts dancing, and someone else starts dancing with them, and everyone else starts dancing, and all of a sudden you say, I better jump in, because I should be dancing just like everyone else. You can stop it there, guys. They get the idea. Um, <laughs> And that's what happens. We get molded and we get shaped by the world around us. But I want to ask you if what you're being conformed to is what you want to be conformed to. More importantly is what God wants you to be conformed to. How do we conform? What do you give your attention to? Where do you seek acceptance? Who do you grant authority to in your life? These things conform us. Where do you seek acceptance? Where do you give your attention to Where do you grant authority in your lives? These things conform us. So Romans chapter 12, let me read verses 1 and 2, but we're going to focus in just on the first part of verse 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And let's just focus in on that one phrase. Do not be conformed to this world. 
Paul writes as he begins this section of scripture with, of practical life, of how to live your life, one of the first things he says is do not be conformed to this world. We talked about the, did a little Greek lesson last week in one of the words in the passage. Let's return to that this week, a little bit of the background to these words, do not be conformed to this world. Some of your translations say, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, or do not be conformed to the ways of this world. What those translations are doing, they're trying to bring out a nuance in this word conformed that's there in the Greek that doesn't come through very well in our literal English translations. The Greek word there for conformed is has a root word of schemata, scheme we get our word from. That sounds a little different, right? It's not just being conformed to anything. There's a scheme behind it. There's a pattern behind it. And so some of your translations will try and bring out this. Do not be conformed to the schemes of this world, to the patterns of this world. But even the word world is not the typical Greek word cosmos, which you know, cosmonaut, you know, cosmos, world. It means this little round thing that we float around in through the universe. It doesn't use the typical word cosmos. It uses the word ion, which means or can be translated age. So now does it sound different? Do not be conformed to the schemes of this age. Do not be conformed to the schemes or the strategies of the age that you happen to live in. And so when Paul puts it that way, we suddenly need to ask, what are the schemes of the age that we live in? What are the patterns of the age that we live in that we need to consider? What are the thoughts, opinions, speculations, impulses, and aspirations of the age that we live in? How is it possible that the people of God can be conformed to the image of the people around them and not conformed to the image of God. Well, let me give you a little bit of an example from biblical history of what this looks like. There was a time in the history of God's people of Israel back uh, when they were just in really their infancy as a nation. They were a theocracy. They were ruled by God as their king. And he would exercise his judgments through judges and exercise and communicate his voice through judges. But the people of God at one point said, we don't want a king like that. We want something different. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, this is what they say. They come to Samuel, who was the judge at the time, and they say this. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Good way to start a conversation, right? (laughs) Behold, wait, it gets better. You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, listen to this, like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are also doing this to you. And so, God says, when they are asking for a king, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So what were the people of Israel doing? They were saying, hey, we look at these other nations around us, and they've all got kings sitting on the throne. I mean, they've got someone they can go to and talk to. We want something like that. You know, Samuel, we're tired of not having a king we can see. We're tired of you speaking on his behalf. We want a king we can see who will be, sit on the throne, and so when other nations come and ask, who's your king, we can say, he's right there. Instead of saying, well, God is our king. And so they wanted to be like other nations. So their thinking was conformed to the schemes of the age. But here's the trade-off. They couldn't have a king like other nations and have God as their king. God said, they're rejecting me. They're saying, God, we don't want you as king. We want a king like other nations have. And the truth is, in our lives, there may be times where we look and we say, I want what they have. But we don't realize to get what they have, we have to adopt values that whatever they is, they have that may be very different from the values that we say and profess as followers of God and of Jesus Christ. But we want to be like other nations. We want to be like them. And so we get conformed to the thinking of the world at times. And it, what it looks like is what it looked like in Samuel. But God gave them what they had asked for, even though they didn't realize even what they were asking for. And so sometimes we want to be like other people and other nations. And our thinking is like the thinking of this world. That's what it looks like in a biblical story. Let me give you quickly, what does it look like in our lives? For, for me and you, you say, okay, Pastor Rick, that's fine, but I'm not here asking for a king like other nations. I'm not here asking for those things. Where does it show up in my world? Where does it show up between Sundays? Where does it show up in the world that I live in? Let's just talk about a few places where the thinking of our age can affect the thinking of people who want to follow God as well. Uh, There's some popular statements and popular things in our current culture that sound good and that may be embraced, but when you embrace them, what you don't realize is the baggage that sometimes comes along with them. So let me just talk. Let's talk about a few things in our age that our age, our age is embracing and where we need to be careful that all of our thinking doesn't become completely conformed. How many of you have seen the bumper sticker that says coexist? I've seen this bumper sticker, right? And it's made up of all different religious symbols as a part of it, right? And, and, and look, on the surface, you look at it, and on the surface, I look at it, and I say, yes, we should coexist. And by that, I mean we should both exist, right? I mean, coexist at its very core means 
we should each have the ability to live. We should not kill each other for disagreeing with each other. We should coexist. And I would say, I would affirm that. I would say yes. And I think most of us would affirm that. Say yes, we should, we should coexist with each other. We should not, in the name of religion, kill each other or in the name of anything else, be killing each other off. Coexisting is good. But there's, some, there's another message that comes along with it, isn't there? Because of all the religious symbols that make up the word, there's another message that comes along with it. And the other message that comes along with it is all religions are kind of equal and let's not let this get in the way of anything else. Let's not let this bring up any type of confrontations. We're all kind of the same. It's kind of the message that it brings with it and implies. Let me give you some statistics as we go through this. Uh, that come from a book called Good Faith. Um, And one of the statistics is this uh, regarding this topic. They did a survey and uh, Barna Group did the survey and one of the statements that came back they made is people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% of people agreed with that. I would expect a lot of people to agree with that statement. 61% of Christians agreed with that statement. 61% of Christians said, yeah, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. And so I say, well, why would that be the case? Because many times, without thinking about it, our thinking can conform to the world around us to say, yeah, keep your beliefs in church, at home, but don't live them out, you know, in this public space. You just, just keep them quiet. You'll be fine. Just worship God in church. That's what goes underlying with this. And I have to ask myself, is my thinking being conformed to the world around us? If 66% of Christians would say, or 61% of Christians would say, yeah, don't let your beliefs affect the public sphere. Don't live out your faith publicly. Um, and I have to ask myself that, um, you know, because the underlying theme with that is often, yeah, all religions are the same, so what's the point? One quote by a man named Steve Turner in a poem, he said, he said, yeah, all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. Just those things. Because they're not. When you look at them, they're not the same. We differ greatly on what we think about heaven, hell, creation, sin, salvation. And so be careful in our thinking. You know, another, another one that's uh, popular in our day, and again, one that I'd say, yeah, I agree with it. It's the word tolerance. Yep, absolutely. How can you be against tolerance? I'm going to be against tolerance, right? Absolutely. We should tolerate one another. We should at least, we should be able to have civil discussions about things we disagree with. No question about that. We should be able to engage in conversation and live life beside people that we completely disagree with. We should tolerate each other for that. But what often comes along with that is tolerate everyone except for the person that doesn't agree with the stuff that you tolerate. It's 
not, no one's advocating for real, complete tolerance. Again, statistic was, the statement was, people should not criticize someone else's lifestyle choices. 89% said, yeah, shouldn't do that. 76% of Christians said, yeah, shouldn't do that. Here's what can come along with that type of thinking. Implicit is, God also should not criticize someone's lifestyle choices. I mean, that, that can come. You've got to be careful with your thinking, right? That can sneak in there. Well, we shouldn't. No, don't judge. And then, well, God said, well, well, who's God? God can't judge either. God should be able to criticize our lifestyle choices. I mean, certainly the people of God. Again, here's what I'm talking to. I'm talking to Christians who would be need to be careful about adopting a way of thinking that is not a scriptural and godly way of thinking. I expect, as I said, I totally expect people outside the church to embrace this way of thinking. Makes sense if you're not a follower of Christ. Most of the things in our life are not going to make sense to people who do not follow Christ and live their lives as a living sacrifice. If you're a Christian, most of the way you live your life, the way you act, the way you uh, treat your money, the way you treat your possessions, the way you raise your kids, much of it will not make sense to someone who doesn't follow Christ. I'm talking to Christians to just say, be careful. Be careful. Be careful when you embrace something that you understand all that's going along with it, that you're not being conformed to the world's thinking that says that uh, in this case, no one should be able to criticize the way you live. And again, if we're not careful, that can be not even God. I just bring God's word in line with my thinking. Be careful. Identity is real popular in our world. We're searching for identity often. And again, Barna made this statement. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. 91% of U.S. adults agreed. Totally expect that. 70% of practicing Christians said, yep, that's the best way to find yourself. Look within yourself. The real answer is the best way to find your identity is to look to the God who created you and say, God, who am I? Who am I that you have created me? You are the author and the creator of life. You have given me this gift. Who am I? Tell me. This is where I seek my identity. If I constantly look within myself, I am going to create God within my image rather than recognize I have been created in the image of God. Careful. Be careful. This thinking sneaks in. This thinking sneaks in and you start thinking, well, I need more self-help books. I need more of this because I got to find out who I am. You really want to find out who you are? Start with the one who made you. Start with the one who created you. Find out who you are and who I am. Fourth and final one, to be happy. Happiness. Happiness is a good thing. I'm for happiness. Over the alternative, I choose happiness. I definitely choose to be happy over being unhappy. I want to be joyful rather than not joyful. I want to be happy. I definitely choose that. But when we make a good thing an ultimate thing, we create an idol, right? Many things that bring us short-term happiness may bring us long-term pain and regret. So the statement in the survey was, the highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. Highest goal in life, 
to enjoy it as much as possible. 84% agreed. Actually, I'm surprised that number is not higher. 84% of those surveyed outside the church who don't profess any faith would agree with that. 66% of Christians said, yes, the highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. I'm for happiness, not against it. But be careful. Be careful because when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, what you have created is an idol because there ought only to be one ultimate thing in your life and my life if we are following Christ. And that is God himself. So I'm all for good things. I'm all for happiness, but not at the expense of the ultimate thing in my life, which is following God. We have to be careful. So where in your life might this thinking be creeping in? And it's hard, right? Because it's like the fish in water. You don't know you're swimming in the water. It's just always there. We swim in this world of ideas. And unless we're very careful and very critical and constantly in God's word, thinking through a biblical worldview, we'll miss it. We'll miss something that's being brought into our mind in a way of thinking that is not in line with God. I've been reading a book lately that's been helping me try and recognize, or at least causing me to think about this. Um, the book's called How Not to Be Secular. And, and it's just, it's kind of an academic little text, and, and, but it's been helping me think through the age that we live in. And he talks about um, subtraction stories, that our culture wants to tell a subtraction story. They want to keep the things that they want to keep, but they want to subtract God from everything. And so we want, the va- we want the morals, we want the values, we want the good things, we want you to be kind to each other, we want people to love each other and not kill each other, we want people to be civil with one another, we want you to help the poor, we want you to be altruistic, but we want to subtract God completely out of the equation. And at some point, someone says, why should I? If I came from nothing and I'm going to nothing, how can there be any meaning in between? Why should I? Because when you tell a subtraction story, you lose, you lose the grounds for the story and the life that you live in. But that's the story that our culture is trying to tell you right now. They're trying to tell us a subtraction story. You can have all of this and you don't need God. It's a subtraction story. And so we have to consider that. It's amazing the way thinking has changed. One of the questions asked in this book is how did we get from time, say in the year 1500, in which atheism was virtually unthinkable? Think about that, right? I mean, I know you didn't live back then, but all you've read from history, the year 1500, 500 years ago, think about what was going on in the world. I mean, even if people weren't Christians, they were involved in some religion. Atheism was almost unthinkable in the year 1500. How did we get from there to in the year 2000 when theism is almost unbelievable? When you can walk into work and people would say, you're what? You you did what yesterday? Really? Oh, you just took your kids there, right? Because you don't really believe that stuff, right? Would have been unthinkable just 500 years ago, maybe 400 years ago. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this age. Your thinking changes 
Our thinking changes. For the first time in history, uh, again, uh, quoting this book, a purely self-sufficient humanism came to be a widely available option. A humanism that has no other goal beyond human flourishing of no other society was this previously true. Where we would say the only goal. It's not about Zeus and the Greek gods. It's not about the Roman gods. It's not about some other god that's worshipped. It's not about God Almighty, God the Creator. It's not about Yahweh. It's not about any of this. We can live just for human flourishing alone. For the first time in history, this type of thinking is coming and being able to, being received as a viable option. Whereas before you might argue, well, we argue about the God that we worship and how we used to be worshiped. Now there's not even an argument because they say we don't need a God to worship. We can just live for human flourishing. Civility becomes a secularized sanctification. So we get new sacred spaces of modernity. The concert hall is temple. The museum is chapel. Tourism as the new pilgrimage. I remember after the marathon bombings in 2013, I just thought it was an interesting response from our city when it wasn't quite like 9-11 because I remember 9-11 and I remember the churches being filled and I remember the prayer gatherings on TV and I remember the, the, the response being we need to go to the churches and then after the marathon bombing in 2013, there was, there was a service at a large church in Boston, but it did not get nearly the play of the Red Sox game afterwards where we gathered in a different kind of temple. And I thought, what an interesting response of the world that we live in. That we gathered and we gathered our holy people holy people in our society, those that are important, and we put them and we watched and we gathered around a sports field. And there was no invocation that I remember. There was no priest present. It was a gathering in a sports stadium. Do not be conformed to this world. Be careful. I'm all for community involvement. I'm all for community support. I'm all for loving and caring for each other. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking to you, Christian man, Christian woman. Be careful when the thinking sneaks in to our thinking and we start becoming conformed to the world around us that the place we run to in our pain is not the mountain of God, is not the person of God, on other people and to diversions and to entertainment. Careful. Be careful. A couple of years ago, a number of years ago, I went to, speaking of sports, I went to the Sky Dome. It was called the Sky Dome then. Now it's, I think, Rogers Stadium or something like that up in Toronto. And a unique place because they have a roof that opens and closes. And we were there on a day when the roof was open. Um, but it was, I guess they were expecting some inclement weather, so it began to close. I don't know if you've ever been there or one of these stadiums when this happens, but it is so slow. I mean, you can barely see it moving. 
But it's moving, and it closes. And eventually, you might look up, and you didn't even notice it, and it's closed. And one of the illustrations that this author uses in this book is he's saying, we're so focused of the play on the field that we do not even lament that we have lost sight of the stars. That we are so focused on what's going on immediately in front of us that we don't even consider the transcendent that's out Don't believe the story that as soon as you leave the house or put your Bible down that God leaves you. The Holy Spirit goes with you into that school, into that job, into that cubicle, into that, that sales floor, on that lab, in that classroom. God goes with you. That's the story that you need to know. And that's how we can keep from being conformed to the image and the thinking of this age and make sure that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. One day you will see Christ face to face. That's what the scriptures teach. In that moment, I want to be like him. I want him to see someone he recognizes not someone who's been conformed to the image of this age. Take out that Lego block. Just encourage you to, I don't know how you'll do it to help you remember, someplace this week in your world, I encourage you to place this Lego block. And here's my challenge. Put it someplace where you don't normally Maybe pray or encounter God on a regular... This isn't where you do your... Don't put this right by your Bible in the morning. I want you to put this... Put this... You got a cubicle at work. Put this somewhere in your work cubicle. You work out of your car. Put this on your dashboard. You in your classroom or your locker at school. Put this there to remind you in that place that God is with you and he has called you to be conformed to the image of his son. You pray with me. Lord, God, we thank you. Father, we recognize the truth this morning that is in your word, and it's in your word. It's true, not just because it's in your word, it's in your word because it's true. The fact is, we are all being conformed to something. Lord, I pray for those of us that have chosen to follow Jesus, that have committed our lives to you through Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray first of all that you would help open our eyes, open our hearts and open our minds to the places where we have believed lies of our age, the places where we have maybe unknowingly embraced the ideas of our age that are not the ideas of our God. Father, help us to be critical thinkers. Help us to recognize the importance of thinking, thinking through things. Lord, help us to see those things in our mind, in our heart, and to commit to not being conformed to this age, but being conformed to the image of your Son. Pray that you would help us, Lord, as we go from this place and as we go about our week. Lord, that we would be more and more like Christ, that we would not believe the subtraction story, but we would see you everywhere and in everything at work in your world, Lord.
Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.